thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, well actually not as ever, but tonight I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and all-round good beer bloke, Pete Mitchum, actually in the house. Yes. Uh, so rather than as... As ever, it's it's unusually, unusually. I'm by, yeah. and it's good to be here face to face. We only do this probably once every year at Gabs. We give this a crack, but this is the first time well, we live. did one up at Black Bunny Kitchen. Ah, uh, yes, that's true. Yeah. Recently, so, yeah. it's, so, it's so nice. we're sitting across the table enjoying a great Australian craft beer, and we've just been through the mill, and then the Woolly <laughs> Mammoth, and then the Pig and Whistle, and Bloodhound, Blood and Bar. Yeah. Just doing a quick tour of uh, Pete's, incidentally, in Brisbane, we're working together at the uh, Brisbane Exhibition, the Echo. We're doing 10 days uh, of serving good beer to the people. And just because he's in town, we decided to check out a few of the great bars in Brisbane. So, Prof, what were your thoughts on some of Brisbane? A lot of chatter uh, around the country about Brisbane's beer scene. What were, what were your thoughts? Yeah, very impressed. I mean, and I don't want to... Uh, for that to to be in any way patronising or anything like that. But having been to Brisbane quite a while ago and then more recently in the last few years from, uh, you know, Queensland Beer Week, uh, I think four years ago or five years ago when I, I started coming back up regularly, and even in the last three years, can really see the difference. Um, and just a... And again, I don't want to use the word maturity, but it seems to be, I think, the Brisbane beer scene and the small bar kind of feel is starting to take shape a little bit and 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 mature as i say is not the right word yeah look i I live here and and i love it and it's very exciting and you know god i mean even five or six years ago there were no beer bar there were no bars that had beer as a feature these days anywhere that opens has has beer um we we had a little bit of a tease in, in in one of the ubers that we caught illegally um to to the venues um, about how you know it was a brilliant Brisbane day. It was you know, 19, 20 degrees, beautiful sunshine, lovely, and uh, so saying how this is a Brisbane winter, and you couldn't help but crack the saying that it's still not Melbourne. And yet, so many of the bars are trying to be a little bit like Melbourne, wouldn't you say? There's, I would suggest, dare I say, an homage. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Dave Golding that he may no. not quite get it. But you know what I mean? Um, a little laneway that we popped into in in the valley, mm-hmm. which was just very, um, look, for want of a better word or term, un-Brisbane. Um, and, and kind of tipping the lid to that hidden secret, um, you have to know about it. Yeah, somebody has to tell you about it before you know about it. Except this is very highly publicised. So exactly. So now, this, is there it's different in that way. The, the, the Melbourne laneway bars, like Melbourne's laneway sprung up because Melbourne CBD prices were so expensive that people that had an interesting idea went into these non-mainstream areas. Yeah, and so um, they, they yep. colonised yeah. the, the, the cheap parts of the city. Yep. And, and places that were um, specialty shops that were destination venues. It was your, your cobbler or a specialist tailor, or it might have been somebody who sold, you know, a, a, a what's the hat? Not a hattier, milliner. a milliner. Um, those sorts of little laneway kind of uh, off the road kind of things that slowly dropped out of favour when people stopped wearing hats and, you know, threw out their old clothes when they got worn. <laughs> and I don't go to the Dana. <laughs> I'll just, you know, throw it out and buy something else. Um, and so those places were, I guess, under under leased. 
and people with these concepts say, yeah, this is where we need to be. This is what would work in this city, but I can't afford big city rents. And because they became so funky, they become destinations. And, and they attract then... So rather than... So you go down to you know one of my, um, Melbourne's laneways and you'll see a little coffee shop and then a little cafe and then a little French patisserie or you won't see a random boutique or a mm. you know a random cobbler it, 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 they tend to kind of attract like but it's like businesses. any kind of urban renewal that once it becomes popular it, then the more moneyed venues move in and they push the cheap ones out and you, you almost see a gentrification and that funky edgy cool starts to lose to the faux yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and so I, I just get this sense of Brisbane, the number of people have gone to Melbourne and love the bars and want to do that up here. They've, they've not gone, what is Brisbane's specialty? Or, you know, things have grown organically out of Brisbane's niches. Yeah. They've been transplanted. And look, they still certainly have a, um, without having a sameness to them, they mm. have their own personality whilst, I guess, borrowing elements. So there's not... Oh, we've kind a lot of, in common. Yeah. Like, I didn't yeah. walk in anywhere tonight and go, oh, I could be in Brunswick East. Okay. If I, you know. Did you go to any places that, hey, this isn't too far different from the last place I went to? There was a bit of a, a feel. So maybe there's a, a, a bit of a... Exposed brick, exposed timber. I was going to say exposed brick, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, timber ceilings, um, a bit of, you know, uh, like street art on your walls <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah, chalkboard, that kind of... That kind of thing. Yeah. And obviously, whoever is doing the lighting design, because <laughs> I suspect it's the same bloke, uh, it must be doing an absolute roaring trade. But it's great to see so many good beers. Um, yeah, so, so many different beers. And, you know, that, 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 that is a very exciting part of uh, Brisbane's beer community. Yeah, for sure. And, and particularly pleasing to see um, so many of the local, you know, most places we went, you could get uh, Green Beacon, you could get Newstead, uh, we had some all-in. Uh, what else did we see tonight? So, pretty much all of the Brisbane um, Fortitude. Fortitude, obviously. sorry, was the other um, one I was trying yeah, to think of. For, uh, Didn't see any the program. No. Interesting. That's what was, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's interesting. Burley, which is probably one of the first. I'm trying to think of how many uh, early, and, and certainly one of the most consistent. For me, Burley is Queensland. And, but, and I was almost... Burley doesn't quite shocked to play in that around. cool, hip, Craft beer bar, you know, they're the next level venues, you know, the, ah, okay. the, the go on, which is a shame because their beers, are, it's, their hef is still one of the best hefs in, in the country. Their pale ale, the, World the Beer Cup 2012 ale, gold medal. Very good. I still think the uh, Burley Premium Lager and the Burley, uh, sorry, the, the, Duke the Duke Premium Hellas. Lager and oh, the yeah. Duke Hellas, which yep. is the mid strength. Yep, gold Two standard. of the best lagers in, in the country. They just don't seem to. Hanging around with the cool kids. So is it they haven't filtered down to the to the smaller? Well, I just don't think they play. There very much is this. Um... So will I see them alongside a, a James Squire Goldmail, for example, or a Han Super Dry, or you'll see them in the bigger venues? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. They, they they just don't play in the same uh, cool kids area. You know, like they're, they're a little bit more grown up, a little bit more mature, and you know, going for the broader stream which, which is great craft yep. beer is, uh, is and look, I suppose too if you're not into the the small bar scene or the you know beer focused venue uh, you're going to catch Burley in your in your BWS or your Uncle Dan's or your yeah your probably first choice. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that's probably right but 
Yeah, so... But uh, onwards and upwards. And it was very nice. I'm not going to spend eight minutes crapping about just going and having a few beers. But uh, yeah, tonight we've got... Uh, well, we, we've recorded two interviews tonight. Now, which do you think we should go first? We've spoken to Danita Warren, who is the uh, executive officer of the Brewers, Brewers Association, Association. Yep. which is not the Craft Beer Industry Association, but is the... And not to be confused with the BA. BA in the United in the States, which yeah. is the Craft Brewers Association over there. This is the uh, association representing the lobbying interests, body. lobbying body of the big brewers. Um, great interview, which I think we might go first before I we speak so. to Mazen Hajar, um, which is a, just a great interview. So, um, yeah, look, Danita Warren, former executive officer of the National Farmers Federation, you know, a, a career in... You know, lobbying and you know special interest um, advocacy w- within government. Um, now doing it for for the big brewers. Really interesting uh, chat. Lovely, lovely person. But you know, w- w- without too much uh, um, preamble, we might just sort of uh, introduce it by saying I threw to her and asked her what the Brewers Association was. Well, Brewers Association is representing all the uh, large breweries in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so we have five members. Uh, line in both Australia and New Zealand, uh, CUB uh, and Coopers and DB Brewing. Um, and our focus is very much on representation at a government relations level and ensuring that the voice of beer can be heard in the determination of policy and regulation that may affect the industry. Where does the, 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 the membership get drawn from? Um, you know, obviously, you've mentioned the, the five largest brewers, mm. um, but we've seen a couple of entries um, recently. You know, Coca-Cola has uh, re-entered the, the, the market. Um, we, we've also got Asahi um, has a couple of brands here. Are they eligible for membership in, in the association or have they just not elected to try? Uh, in, in most parts, they probably wouldn't be eligible. We're very much focused on beer and beer only. And as such, the um, provisions of membership mean that the vast majority of alcohol um, turnover in a business has to come from beer. Uh, and so not knowing their, um, their splits, um, certainly it's unlikely that they would be eligible. We believe, particularly because of the tax debate, um, it is very important to ensure that we are focused on the category of beer without any major uh, conflicts of interest in terms of other alcohol categories. Um, so, you know, they may be eligible in time, but at the focus, uh, uh, we very much focus on those those who are predominantly producing beer and are very much focused on the beer market. So that's where their prior, um, you know, primary focus is because for a long time CUB you know, had their multi-beverage mm. strategy where they were very heavily invested in wine. They were, you know, they were also looking at spirits. Mm. Um, that didn't preclude them you know, once their, their biggest part of their business was wine? Yeah, this is a fairly new phenomenon in terms of our constitution um, and it's just a reinforcement of what we've always believed that the association was and that was a beer industry association it's not a generic alcohol industry association and for us to stay true to uh, what is in the best interests of beer then we needed to uh, make sure that those who are members uh, had beer as their primary focus. How about uh, smaller members obviously the craft brewers that we've seen you know depending on which figure you read uh, which month um, we've seen you know a couple of hundred very small brewers um, 
come in, they've set up their own association. Is, is there a size minimum before they would be eligible to join the uh, Brewers Association? Uh, yes, there is. Um, and, and, and also we have to recognise that there are differences of um, member expectations and demands between large and, and small companies. Um, you know, we've seen some of the problems uh, that Winemakers Federation uh, have been experiencing. And certainly from my experience at industry association level, it does make life um, easier in terms of dealing uh, with the bigger, um, bigger producers and focusing purely on government relations. Where I think the great thing about the smaller groups such as the Craft Brewers Industry Association, they can be looking at those additional services um, that craft brewers are seeking that the, brew the bigger brewers aren't because they can do it themselves. Um, that shouldn't preclude us working in alignment on areas of mutual interest and agreement, um, but sometimes purely from an administrative point of view, it is actually easier having um, you know, different associations um, with a very much a focus on uh, what the clear expectations are of members, and that usually differs uh, between larger um, companies versus smaller um, small businesses. It, it's interesting to hear that perception from the, the, the larger end because I know there was some, you know, unhappiness when the CBIA set up and made itself, you know, open to uh, the at least the, you know, boutique arms of the the, the big breweries, and some mm. people felt that, you know, that would see, uh, you know, an overt influence by the big breweries in the smaller industry association. Look, I'm not obviously aware of the day-to-day -day activities of that organisation, but certainly from my perspective, you know, um, we we keep in contact. Um, I provide you know, information occasionally on regulatory issues that um, the smaller association is not necessarily dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis, and the expertise of those who sit around that that with coming from some of the larger companies. Um, does provide some additional resources that they may not otherwise have. So, you know, it, it's certainly it's got to be dependent on an association always needs to focus on well, what are its objectives. Um, and certainly from our perspective, um, a very clear objective is ensuring that um, we still have the commercial freedom to operate um, in an environment where we do recognise alcohol for what it is, and that is it's a type of drug. But at the same time, we should not have um, being overly regulated. And that's very much the focus of our organisation, where some of the other associations, such as uh, Craft Brewers Industry Association, they're also focused, which I think is fantastic, on, on category recognition and category understanding and providing uh, business support to their membership, which is also just as important as those businesses develop. So the Brewers Association, through its members, don't see that there is a role for the association to represent the category um, and, and invest in the category to, to, to grow it for, for its members? We certainly believe that the association uh, needs to focus on improving the reputation of the um, beer industry from a regulatory sense and, and how we combat um, the, the public debate on alcohol. 
but when it comes to actual and through that realizing that also beer has its its role to play in the alcohol industry in Australia so for example when we talk about um, alcohol taxation there is a perception by many decision makers that um, the the wine industry is very much part and part of, of this sort of um, uh, farm farm to bottle so to speak story but beer isn't. And so part of that enhancement of our reputation is telling our story of grain to glass or farm to bar and, and, and painting that picture. But when it comes to actually the promotion of um, the beer itself and improving that category, the decision that the association has made is that we're not experts in marketing, but our members are. And therefore, it should come from um, the members on a on a company basis, as opposed to the industry association that's very very focused on on, on government relations. It, it, it's interesting um, that you know you talk about the you know, government regulation and the image of beer um, on on one hand as it relates to to regulation, but of course. The way that beer has been marketed over the years has very much played and created those perceptions, um, and, and it's maybe a, a bit of cart and horse as to which um, came first. But uh, you know, the, the brewing industry certainly has done very little um, to, to change those perceptions from the way that they've marketed the, the beer. Is that a fair comment? I certainly think that. Um you know there is a um, change in in attitude by consumers, and as such, the marketing uh, teams have got to um, reflect that accordingly. I'm not a marketer, so I, I can't make any um, specific um, detailed um, comments. But I do think that there is a generally a recognition that we need to uh, change the way that we portray ourselves, um, and, and part of that is through um, marketing of of the product. And certainly, the companies are looking into that. Um, but in terms of as an industry association, um, what we haven't been good at until recently is actually talking to politicians and um, and discussing with them about our story about domestic production. I mean, when I first started here, I went and saw one of the first meetings I had was with the agriculture minister, and he said to me, you know what, this is the first time anyone in, in uh, from the Brewers Association has come and talked to us and, and actually get us to understand about um, domestic production and your reliance on uh, domestic ag agricultural produce. Um, and uh, likewise with the Department of Agriculture, there hadn't been a real great understanding of that connection. So it's re-establishing um, that full story within that policy setting um, is very much our focus and getting government to understand that when you make changes to um, regulation in terms of the beer industry, it's not just the brewers that you're affecting, but it's the a large number of people supporting us from agriculture through to logistics, right through to the hospitality industry where still the largest um, single product sold is, is beer. And, and I, I guess it's interesting, like, Listening to, to to you say that, and it's very interesting because in some areas the uh, the industry is very savvy about the role of perception um, in, in in terms of their political lobbying. For example, um, you know, if if any brewer or sales rep um, gets charged with uh, drink driving, for example, um, they find themselves out of a job very very quickly um, because they there's very there's no tolerance for 
you know, those sorts of behaviours that can be publicly seen as, you know, endorsing irresponsible drinking. Um, and in that sense, they, they, they have a much higher standard than our politicians and our police who make <laughs> and regulate the laws. Um, so because they understand how easy it is to, uh, you know, to, to, to point the finger mm. if, if, if they behave a certain way. Mm. The flip side is um, they don't seem to have that same understanding of perceptions um, when they, you know, promote some of the beers. And I've recently sort of uh, had a bit of a go at Pure Blonde for the message that that sends um, in saying that one particular segment of the category is healthy, which to my way of thinking means that the rest of the industry isn't healthy. Do do, do you see that, uh, is is, is there any um, sort of role for brewers to project a positive perception of beer more generally through their marketing and not just through the way that they publicly proclaim on some of those political issues? Well, um, from our perspective, we've made the decision that the association focused very much on that government relations um, sense and then um, the companies themselves undertake that product, um, that marketing of, of beer, the category, as well as their own branding. And that's then a commercial decision that they make. Um, you know, certainly some industry associations um, from from the brewers' perspective have undertaken um, broader marketing campaigns. Um, but we've decided that would, um, from an Australian and New Zealand perspective, um, be a dramatic change to what we've done historically. Um, and, and as such, we're far better off focusing on what we're good at, um, and that is that political work and then leaving it to the companies. But you know, there's no doubt that in general terms, we all need to um, play a role in um, better promoting the beer as the product and, and from my perspective at an association level what we've needed to build up is a, a stronger presence in Canberra and a stronger presence within the state's government. So they're not understanding about the beer, the product but it's also the social responsibility aspects of, of what the industry does, whether it's our commitment to drink wise, whether it's our commitment to um, self-regulation on, on alcohol marketing and so forth. Um, that is where our focus is and then we leave the remainder up to either our members or, or others in the beer community. It must make it hard for you. I know that uh, whenever I speak to um, you know, government members in, in, in my um, area and I, I try and talk to them about the sort of growth of uh, brewing and you know, the, the regional employment prospects and the, all of the benefits um, that, that come through, at the end of the day, it always seems to come back to this perception of beer as something to be consumed in great volume when you're sitting on the hill at the cricket, generally with half a watermelon on your head. Um, <laughs> you know that, which is some of the very public perceptions of beer, um, and it must be very hard to advocate some of the economic things that you're talking about um, to legislators who hold very old-world uh, perceptions of, of the product, though. I think the problem is generally a a bad perception of alcohol in general that we're trying to combat more than um, a particular category. Uh, When we see in the newspapers such as we did um, uh, this week on uh, academics saying that the statistics on alcohol consumption in decline are wrong, that we're actually having a greater uh, change of um, an increase in binge drinking. And that made a number of the newspapers this week. Those those statistics were so selective and painted such an incorrect um, picture. 
um, that is what we're dealing with on a day-to-day basis in terms of impact on regulation, on, on policy, on the industry, where we get a group of anti-alcohol advocates and anti-alcohol researchers trying to create a crisis in um, alcohol consumption in this country to justify additional research dollars uh, for their work. Now, that is probably an overgeneralistic statement to make and there are some who genuinely want to resolve alcohol misuse in this country as we do, but the some researchers, inflamed by some sections of the media, are creating very much this crisis that needs to be resolved. And to resolve those, then the only way policymakers can uh, uh, resolve those is things such as banning of, of alcohol marketing, um, putting plain labels on alcohol, uh, and increasing price, and reducing availability. And so from my perspective in the three years I've been with the association, it hasn't the the information and the importance of promoting beer the category at a policy level has been important, but what is far more important is combating um, this anti alcohol sentiment by the vocal minority. But it's I mean even that's quite interesting. I've spoken to a number of um, you know, inverted commas, anti alcohol campaigners. Um and I don't think I've ever met an anti-alcohol campaigner who professed to be a teetotal. Um, so, which is something that I've always struggled to get my head around. Uh, you know, they they enjoy drinking and uh, you know, all, all consume on some level, um, which which is very unusual for you know campaigners of anything to be you know accepting of it at some level. Mm. Um, isn't the underlying perception of alcohol, you know, making it easy for them because you know that there is very sort of a fallow ground for them to, uh, um, you know, cast their seeds. Many of them believe that they have their huge wins on tobacco and it should then be replicated in alcohol. That's not the case because one. But there weren't many tobacco anti-tobacco campaigners who smoked, for example. No, that's true. But I think the problem is that there is a perception by some that um, they drink only ever in moderation. I haven't drunk with them, so I wouldn't know whether that's the case or not. Um, but there are a lot of people out there that uh, drink drink to excess, which unfortunately some do, and they cannot be... Um, and we can't rely on them to change their behaviour. So instead, we've got to take a supply-side attitude and in terms of changing alcohol misuse in this country. Um, rather than focusing on individual responsibility and and how we how we change people's behaviour around alcohol, and so the debate we have at a political level is not so much the objective of resolving alcohol misuse in this country. We all agree that we need to resolve that. The 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 debate we have is what policies and what regulation, if at all, you need to to resolve alcohol misuse. We would argue in the industry that um, we've already got significant regulatory um, uh, impacts on the industry um, from significant restrictions on marketing. Uh, We've got um, taxation that impacts on price. Uh, We have licensing rules in terms of availability. Uh, And we're one of the most highly regulated alcohol industries in the world. 
you don't need to go any further in that space. What you should be doing and what the public wants governments to do is actually penalise those who are misusing alcohol, whether it's enforcement of existing laws, whether it's new laws uh, for those who are um, misusing alcohol, particularly if in a social setting where it has public ramifications, uh, domestic violence issues if it's exacerbated by alcohol um, or underage drinking. Um, so that's where the focus is. It's on how we best resolve alcohol misuse problems and that's where we have the debate because they are very much campaigners of significantly curtailing supply. Why do you think it is that whenever um, reports about alcohol abuse or problem drinking or the healthfulness of alcohol um, you know, is reported in the media that it's always a, you know, almost you know, you know I, I can't think of too many examples where it hasn't been a company with a photo of a, you know, someone who looks like they've walked out of a beer commercial, um, you know, a slightly overweight, um, bearded guy uh, holding a, uh, you know, a scruffy uh, guy holding a big mug of beer. Mm. Why, why, why is beer the poster child for alcohol abuse? Well, it's interesting, actually. I've been keeping an eye on those photos, and they've actually less, less um, beer orientated in the last 12 months than they have been in the past. But... Um, I think look, ultimately, I think beer is the is the largest selling category out of all the categories. Um, there is a perception, whether right or wrong, that more people get drunk on beer than they do on another product. Um, we we would disagree on that. Um, but again, it's a it is a perception issue. But it's also something that I think is changing. You know, the last few photos I've seen um, lately haven't been of beer; they've been of wine or RTDs or even um, sometimes spirits. So, but again, that's about us engaging more effectively with um, media. Um, and it's disappointing sometimes that we try and engage with media and they're not willing to give us a right of response. Um, so, you know, again, a classic case was this story this week around alcohol consumption statistics. Despite the fact that the media know where to contact us, they never ask us to comment. Um, I can even preempt sometimes uh, things happening with some of the anti-alcohol groups and I will email um, journalists who I think might be interested in the story with um, talking, um, speaking notes and quotes they can use from us and they are not utilised. Um, so somehow um, we've got to collectively, not just the brewers, but everyone in the alcohol industry has got to be a lot smarter in um, ensuring that we can actually respond and respond effectively and, and change this perception. But again, does that come down to, you know, is there a little bit of a legacy from, you know, big tobacco, for example, and some of the techniques that they employed, uh, you know, decades ago that have become rather famous, you know, that that big alcohol, um, you know, or even calling it big alcohol, is is enough to scare people off and make them think that there is a, a you know a whole lot of sinister sort of network going on in the past. And that's where I think we've got to be very open and transparent in what we do. And more importantly, um, I think unlike tobacco, certainly from a brewers association perspective, we are very upfront in acknowledging that there is alcohol misuse in this country. That that needs to be resolved um, and that we want to play a proactive role in assisting with resolving alcohol misuse. Um, tone and your approach to an issue is just as important as, as how you defend the industry. Um, and 
certainly um, I remember speaking at a, at a conference with a, a number of um, in New South Wales where a number of state members of parliament um, really were quite concerned that I was there in the first place and as soon as I said that we acknowledge alcohol as a drug and we acknowledge that as a consequence it needs special rules about alcohol marketing the whole nature of the um, tension in the room dissipated because they weren't expecting that from us. Um, but what we then did say is that we think we'd go far enough in terms of those rules, um, but we've got to keep an eye on it. And here's our community research that shows that in general the, the population believes that we're actually exceeding expectations on alcohol marketing rules. Um, so it, it's, it's very important about how we approach um, those issues and how we work with those who really want to try and resolve problems as opposed to the political lobbyists who just want to get another notch on a win on um, pushing back on the whether it's the alcohol industry, the food industry or, or the tobacco industry. Um, yeah, I'm, look, I'm sort of just uh, sort of taking all of that in, I guess, um, and, and maybe it's my particular point of view, but I look at, um, you know, Beer throughout uh, has had various evolutions. You know, way back to to the famous Hogarth paintings, where beer was seen as the beverage of moderation compared to things like gin. And uh, some of the great work that was done by Anheuser Busch in the States um, early last century, where you know they, they really talked about the agricultural and the, the healthfulness of, of, of beer. And um, at, at some point during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, beer came to be seen as something much less, uh, you know. Um, positive um, and, and I'm not quite sure you know what drove that but to me the perception of a product makes it you know you know easier or harder to uh, lobby some of those other campaigns that you're making because you're not you, you don't have that anchor of, of, of bad um, perception um, you know weighing down your other your, your other efforts mm. Look, generally when I talk to decision makers they're not too concerned about beer they know it's a low alcohol product they know the story of beer being introduced into Australia to try and uh, you know, cut down the consumption of rum. Um, you know, they recognise that in uh, indigenous communities that um, you know, the, the, the restriction just to light beer is a great, is a great option. And in fact, um, I heard a story this week where uh, a uh, licensing inspector uh, was telling uh, wine, cellar door wine restaurants that they had to offer beer as a lower alcohol alternative. So in general, we never have too many problems about beer in terms of um, it as a product from a decision-maker point of view because they do recognise it's far lower in alcohol than most of the other alcohol categories. Um, I think it's more of a... And as a consequence, while it's important that we tell all those stories in a regulatory sense, we actually are of the view that it's in general an alcohol problem uh, and people's perceptions about what alcohol does to individuals and, and, as, and as a consequence of their behaviour that is having the negative effect. And beer is singled out mainly because of um, A, it's the largest category and, and to some degree mainly because you know of the perception of who are beer drinkers as opposed to who are wine drinkers. So if you do a reputation study, when people think of wine, 
they think of the premium end of wine. They don't think of those, unfortunately, you know, the teenagers, for example, um, and uni students drinking um, the, the cask wine. Um, when there is a perception of spirits, they think of high-end spirits and not necessarily thinking of um, people drinking, you know, straight vodka and getting absolutely plastered. Which all of which brings me back to my, my my very first question: Don't the brewers have to own that responsibility because of the way that they have marketed beer over the last fifteen, twenty, thirty years? Look, there's there, as I've said, there's no doubt that marketing takes plays a a role of that, but it's also a perception of who our consumers are, and and. Do we need to change the perception of the category? I think everyone in the industry has said yes, that we do. We've just said that we don't um, think that it's the association's role to do that, but rather it's at a commercial level for those who are marketing it on a day-to-day basis. Um, and those those guys are the experts, and that's the way we've left it. And you might disagree, but you know that that's at the end of the day, the associations made the decision that. I, I, no, no, um, look, I, I, I don't I don't disagree with um, the, 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 whose responsibility it is. But when yeah. you say that they're the experts, they're the experts that I see got us largely into the problem <laughs> where beer is perceived as something much less than. Uh, than than wine or spirits, but you know that's particularly over the last uh, fifteen twenty years yeah, where RTDs. Yeah, that's a historical. Um, there's obviously that history, and we always need to learn from history. Um, and but at the same time, you know, from from my perspective, running an association, the biggest issue that I'm facing at the moment is a general alcohol issue uh, perception problem more so than a category specific problem. Um, last year, there was a, an article that uh, the uh, I think Mark Powell from Line said that the Brewers Association was you know had been consulting with um, the Anheuser Busch and had its own. I'm just uh, looking at the the article um, that the Brewers Association had been doing some research into the perception of beer and that you were looking at doing a, a campaign. That's never gone ahead. No, well, look, we looked at um, looked at some options, particularly after some of the work that's been done in the UK and Europe, and we came to that conclusion that um, we're better off leaving it to the companies and that the association focus on government relations. Um, so, you know, we we are leaving it to the companies to to do that work. Was there any sort of friction between the companies and how in which direction that they were heading in? No, not necessarily. I mean, we, we you've obviously. Um, um, there, there are issues there of um, how to collectively work, how uh, the, the just the process of collectively making decisions, and and in Australia in particular, we've got to be extraordinarily careful on competition laws in this country. And so, you know, for a variety of different reasons, we made the decision that it wasn't appropriate doing something collectively. Uh, it was best dealt with at a company level, um, and the association focused on that um, on that political work. Uh, what, what other campaigns ha- have you worked on? I know that uh, you've worked on a submission looking at parallel importing um, a- a- as an issue. Mm. Well, certainly, um, the, so the key regulatory focuses in terms of the association uh, is very much on um, uh, ensuring that we maintain the, the right to market um, our products. And so a lot of my time 
um, is spent as a director of um, the self-regulatory scheme on alcohol marketing, which is known as the ABAC scheme. And we've done a lot of work in improving that scheme over the last three years. We've done some community research that shows that the scheme is actually exceeding uh, community expectations on how alcohol should be marketed and, and the, the rules around alcohol marketing. Uh, we've got new digital marketing guidelines. Uh, we've got a new code that uh, covers a lot more marketing that, than tr just traditional advertising. That has been a big, big campaign for us as brewers as the largest funder of that scheme in uh, making sure that ABAC was really reflecting um, the not only the needs of, of industry but also very much the expectations of decision makers and, uh, and the community. Um, another big one uh, over the last few years has been around labelling. Um, there was a significant uh, review into labelling laws in Australia, the Blewett reforms about four or five years ago now, with a series of recommendations that included recommendations for alcohol. Uh, one of those was, um, you know, um, for example, um, putting um, pregnancy warning labels uh, and, and potentially looking at further warnings on uh, on labelling. Um, the beer industry actually led the charge of voluntarily doing uh, the pregnancy warning labels um, and so we hit um, virtually full compliance a lot quicker than the other categories. Uh, it's a little bit of a soft target for the brewing industry though <laughs> given it's mainly men who, you know, by and large, it's men who drink beer. So that is true. But as a as a politician, conti politicians continually remind me that uh, uh, men have to also be knowledgeable about what the rules are around women and pregnancy and alcohol. Um, and so uh, it's important that all alcohol is covered by it. Um, so you know, we we thought it was important to lay that charge around that space. But there was a push for front of pack graphic warning labels like that occurred in tobacco and, and we've been successful in pushing back on that. Um, in more recent times I think the uh, our current focus is obviously the white paper on, on taxation uh, and uh, we, we believe that um, there needs to be some uh, level playing field in the system and, and for cheap wine to pay their fair share of tax. Do has the association looked at um, tax around the you know keg size, for example? Um, having lugged forty-five or forty-six kegs around the exhibition grounds yesterday, um, I, I, I can agree that you know anything smaller than that certainly has workplace health and safety benefits. Is, is that a campaign that the, the the Brewers Association is taking up? It's it's not on my radar. No. Um, Certainly, I agree as, a, as an ex-employer uh, representative on workplace relations issues, including OH&S, um, always OH&S is of considerable importance and, and including um, handling of kegs. Uh, and certainly, we do have guidelines on the association website around, around that issue. But in terms of, um, from a tax purpose, our focus has been very much on uh, ensuring the outlier of the taxation system for alcohol wine is, is resolved and have been silent on on the issue around beer taxation because we believe the first priority for government should be resolving the wine issue. It, it wouldn't benefit the, 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 the brewers to bring pack size uh, or even making it consistent um, 
pack size. So, you know, uh, if you're buying a six-pack or a carton, you're being taxed at the same rate as a uh, keg, provided, of course, that that was bringing the tax down as opposed to bringing everything up. <laughs> I mean, from our point of view, um, beer, unfortunately, in Australia is highly taxed. Um, and, of, of course, uh, our members, as with any beer producer, would like to see a reduction in tax. But we've been realistic. The the current focus on um, taxation in, in Australia, uh, very much um, the government isn't interested in... Um, in, in cuts to their revenue, um, and as such, um, we've we've made the decision that we wouldn't be asking for cuts as much as we would possibly like to, but instead say, well, at least let's let's get the system on an even keel. And at the moment, it's not not when beer consumers are paying um, sort of around about fifty cents in a in a stubby of beer on tax and a and a uh, for a standard drink, um, and a cask wine consumer is paying about five cents a standard drink in tax. Um, so we've focused on the outlier of the of the problem. Um, once that is solved, and alcohol in Australia is generally paying their fair share of of taxation, the next stage ultimately will be: is there a is do we need to uh, change or or streamline beer taxation? But that is not our, our focus in, in terms of this current review process. How likely do you think that is, given the number of wineries in, you know, spread across the number of seats uh, how, and how effective they have been in uh, not just creating perception but just their you know the, the, the number of politicians that would be affected mm. uh, as, as opposed to the, you know, very much smaller number of breweries um, that, that exist mm. in seats. I think the dynamics of the wine industry when it comes to taxation has dramatically changed over the last decade. Um, you now have a very fragmented uh, position of the wine industry in terms of taxation. Uh, and so there are varying different positions. And that changes, therefore, the political dynamic. Uh, and, and even Winemakers Federation themselves says there needs to be change, but more at the rebate end uh, than uh, moving from a value to a volume-based um, tax arrangement. So you know, I, I think those, those, the, there is no longer a single block by the wine industry wanting to seek status quo, um, but instead we're seeing a spectrum of views within the wine industry, but all of them are saying change is required. The question now is to what extent and what what role does taxation play in that change that is required to make the wine industry more profitable in Australia. Um, and that's something that the wine industry needs to consider in consultation with government. That's not up to the beer industry to tell them how to restructure. Um, but what we are saying is that the tax arrangements at the moment um, are, are causing um, a, a shift um, from from wine, um, sorry, from beer into into cheap wine for those who are uh, susceptible to to price. And just just before I let you go, uh, one of the things that you have done recently is launched the uh, Tasmanian Brewery Trial. Or you, you've yes. certainly been a significant contributor to the Tasmanian yeah, Brewery I, Trial. I'm, 
very, very proud of that as an ex-Tasmanian. Um, <laughs> uh, got a soft... you, uh, is one ever an ex-Tasmanian? Uh, yeah, that is very true. That is very true. Um, certainly, um, the, the genesis of the idea of the Tasbeer Trail actually goes back a number of years when I was meeting with the then um, Premier Lara Giddings, uh, said to her that it was uh, disappointing to hear her talk about in a speech about wine and, and whiskey and cider and she didn't mention once beer. And at a time where not only did we have the oldest uh, brewery in uh, Australia, in Tasmania, and also uh, the iconic Vogue's, but we also had this really great growth in craft beer in that state. And unfortunately, the Premier wasn't interested in uh, in reflecting about beer in Tasmania, and so we went and spoke to the then opposition leader, Will Hodgman, who was very keen uh, and he made it a policy to create a Tasbeer trail and put some money behind the trail and support beer events in that state. And so we said, well, if you get in, we'll commit some funding as well. And so the launch recently of the website um, and uh, a brochure soon to be released that will be available to visitors in the state um, is just stage one of a three-year funding project between the state government and Brewers Association in supporting um, the development of uh, the beer trail and beer tourism in Tasmania. We think it just geographically and as well as the whole um, focus of, of food and, and beverages uh, and, and quality product in that state really suits um, us well. Uh, and it is great to be able to be working with some really dynamic brewers down there um, from some of those uh, developing um, craft uh, and, and well-established craft breweries. Uh, so, you know, we've got a working group working together uh, to look at now what events we can start promoting uh, to bring more people down to that state and, and really rediscover or discover new Tasmanian beers uh, and, and promote the state generally. So it's a really good collaboration, not only between government and industry, um, but also between both large and smaller brewers. Um, which has been fantastic, and it's very much an inclusive arrangement where all all breweries have to be involved. Um, there are no exclusions. It, it, it's a ter terrific campaign. Uh, I, I'm a little bit surprised to hear that um, Lara Giddings wasn't more uh, more, more interested. I, I, the one or two times that I ever met her was at um, events at the Cascade Brewery when they were launching the first harvest, and mm. uh, you know had all of the Tasmanian, you know, great Tasmanian producers there, whether it was Bruni Island cheese, and they had the hop farmers. Mm. And it seemed to be something that was would would be very much on her radar. Mm. Did did you get any feelings why it, it wasn't something that she was interested in? Look, I don't know. She just simply just unfortunately dismissed it out of hand. Um, but you know that's history. Uh, we gave them the opportunity, and uh, it was knocked back. Uh, and as such, we then um, proceeded to have the discussion with uh, the opposition leader. Uh, and obviously an election was fast looming in that state. So it's it's very much now an opportunity of whoever is in government in Tasmania um, that we still may hopefully will have a long-term uh, focus for the trail um, because it provides win-win for everybody. Uh, and, you know, they are desperately relying on good quality and attracting tourism to that state to, to revitalise that economy 
and and as such, you know, it, it, the the B trail really um, finalises that story around beverage, fine, good quality beverages in that state, uh, along with obviously the the food focus and the arts and arts focus with the the huge success of Mona, uh, the 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 revitalisation of uh, Hobart in particular has just astounded me since. I left there 15 odd years ago as I was state director of the Hotels Association down there for three years and seeing that dramatic change and that new money coming into um, Hobart as a consequence of Mona has been uh, truly amazing. Again, giving some of the discussion we had at the start of this interview about um, uh, the Brewers Association and, and what their knitting was, which is a phrase that Tim Cooper uses all the time, sticking to your knitting. <laughs> Um, it, it, this sounds very much like it's something that the you know, Cascade and Bogues could have taken on themselves without the Brewers Association getting involved. What's the difference between this and, say, the broader nation, nationwide uh, um, category campaign? This was just a, a um, small um, opportunity. I mean, we may well um, hand it down to... Um, to Bogues and Cascade to deal with on a day-to-day -day level, and that's probably the, what will happen. It was a political opportunity at the time that we ran with. I think my connections with the state, both being from Tasmania originally and also running the AHA down there, uh, helped uh, along with the relationship with the Premier's office. So, you know, I think it's just been a historical reason that we've pushed this, and once it's up and running properly, we probably will hand it over. Um, but it certainly provided the links that the association had um, and and the start of the process enabled that to occur. As I always seem to do, I've taken up much more of your time than I'd initially uh, blocked out in your calendar, Danita. That's so, all Danita, right. Thank you. For, it's, been, it's been a lovely uh, conversation with you. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thank you very much, Matt. I really appreciate it. And that was Danita Warren. Look, Prof, it was one of those interviews. I, I, I just couldn't help but warm to Danita. A really, really yes. nice person. Genuinely interesting person. But it's, it's interesting to hear her take on the Brewers Association is for the big brewers. Um, and their interests differ from the small brewers. And yet, In essence, yeah. And in, in essence, but yet... Um, the rising tide floats all boats, Matt. Well, well, that's, well, that's what I think. But then when you've got the CBIA, which represents craft brewers, they felt the need to include the craft arms of the big brewers as if their interests were the same. So, yeah, yeah that, that was a really interesting. But the whole interview was very interesting. Yep. And look, for the, for the, the punters listening to us on Radio Brews News, I guess the, the takeaway is that at the end of the day... We are we're a successful community when all of our um, all the members of the family kind of shine and do what yep. they're do what they're yep. good at doing. At the end of the day, the two percent we're not you know we we beer in Australia needs the big brewers mm. um, as much as craft needs its small brewers. Well, I was very interested. It was like there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on in that interview that, you know, last year it was announced by Lion that they, there was going to be an industry association category campaign that didn't eventuate. And there, it sounds like there was some 
you know, uh, cartel issues preventing that. But it also, when, when you look at the two very different ways that CUB and Lion are tackling the market at the moment, you do wonder whether there might have been a little bit of friction with, you know, push me, pull you about how, how we go about lifting the campaign. And yeah. Last week, I wrote about the um, Pure Blonde and, um, you know, not quite randy. She was an opinion piece. It was very broadly labelled an opinion piece. Um, did you have any thoughts about that, Prof? Uh, it was very well written. Uh, no superfluous apostrophes. Uh, <laughs> uh, grammar and spelling, excellent. Okay, so you're not going to dive into that one? Well, no. If I, I would encourage all our, re- all our listeners to, to hit the website and, and read it. Um, because I think... I don't want to say too much. It's, it is... Look, it, it was fascinating. I read two articles this week um, about It was one US. of those ones that you actually... Found no. out, discovered halfway through that you'd written? No, no, sorry, no. Um, one was about the American beer market, and there's been all this angst and gnashing and interest and talk about how ABN Bev are buying all of the craft breweries in the States. And, you know, ABN Bev, which is still the biggest, craft, the biggest brewer in the United States, yep. they've got a, you know, faux craft, for want of a better term, um, brand Shock Top which was their own creation, which yep. was uh, early on in the craft beer world, which is 1% of their volume. So if it's 1% of their volume, I'm just roughly working out, it must be less than half percent of the global volume in the United States. And then you've got Goose Island, which they bought, um, that is half a percent of AB InBev's volume. So you're looking at these brands that are huge in the craft beer world that are a fraction of the AB InBev um, volume. Yep. And their biggest selling beer, their biggest growth beer across the entire um, AB InBev portfolio was Michelob Light, which is, you know, nothing, um, which is a low-carb, low, you know, alcohol, very, very much yep. pure blonde, um, which is where yep. I was coming from, um, pure blonde ultra sort of category. And they've had, from memory, 14% growth in that beer alone. And it's a beer that's got a couple of percent of the market. So when you're talking about 14% growth in a beer that's a couple of percent of the market, you're talking about 40 or 50%, 60 70% of the craft beer market um, growth. So, you know, whilst on one hand I understand why CUB are putting all of their effort behind Pure Blonde from a business point of view, I still can't help but think that category of beers takes a dirty great poo in the swimming pool of the rest of the beer market and you know, taints it for everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was asked to um, for an opinion on uh, the breakfast show, Three AW Breakfast Show in, in Melbourne uh, last week with the talking about about Pure Blonde. And I had they read my article by any chance? Did you re- refer them to my article? Oh, it was very quick, Matt. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all about you. Thank you, <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you for the cross-selling of the Australian <laughs> Brews News brand. Please. I did come on as Professor Pilsner from Australian Brews News, so okay. there you go. I, you know, I rang the bell, um, but yeah, I, I cited the uh, El Caraja at the um, at the Great Northern when they had pure blonde on the, the jelly beans. With yeah, serving the you know little saucer with a couple of jelly beans whenever whenever everyone, whenever anyone bought a schooner of. Of pure blonde, saying, "Well, that, that's the difference, effectively." So, um, I think they sort of took on board. It I was, don't even think it's two jelly beans. I oh, look, it's, it's, I, it may I, have not. I, I think it, that, that's very theatrical, but I think yeah. it's actually two rice crackers. 
It could be. It could be. Yeah. I mean, you're starting off with three fifths of bugger all. Yeah. And we're going to go two thirds less than that. It's you know, it's two thirds of but not very much. But how does the industry do? We sell the message that all beer is relatively. Uh, there are still a lot cards. of people, Matt, and uh, you know, uh, present company accepted. Our um, our listening audience is obviously uh, not swayed by clever marketing, but there are still plenty of people out there who who drink what their television tells them to. And, and I. And, and I get and they that. hear that word healthy. Yeah, yeah, no, but, but, but I get that. But when the message should be all beer is relatively low carb and you bring out a beer that is 80% lower carbs than regular beer. Yeah, but I don't, I don't want to lump in what I'm trying to flog or re- resurrect or, or breathe new life into by then saying it's pretty much the same as all the others. But, but that's the I thing. can see you, it from the marketing point of view. But, but that's the thing. From a marketing point of view for one brand, you're damaging the marketing for the rest of the category. And, and Pure Blonde is only, a percent, is, is only a small fraction of their total volume. So yeah. they're basically taking a dump in the pool for the so rest it, of their... Is this the last shot? Do we, like, are, we, are we effectively saying, well, you know, Pure Blonde's it's struggling. It's almost dead in the water. We'll give it one last Well, volume-wise, they're, they're, they're going... CB are going for big brand growth. They don't. Yeah. They've basically abandoned Matilda Bay. Yeah. Um, you know, Fat Yak is the one breakout of that thing. They're going to put all their eggs in the Fat Yak basket, and the rest of the, and that that is the margin. They, they, they don't even want to be in the margins. They want to be in the um, main game. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we, we we could chat about this for hours, and we uh, actually. But we're we're keeping the listeners from a crackingly good interview with Mazen Hatcher. With Mazen Hatcher. Who is a like a funny guy, in a very dry. And look, I think passionate, very passionate. But I think if you've um, if you've opened Lebanon's first craft brewery at around about the same time as uh, Hezbollah started bombing the Shiite out of the Israelis and vice versa, I think you have a different outlook on life. I, I just think we in Australia don't appreciate how a lot of the world has. Uh, experience turmoil and uh, conflict and tension and that sort of thing. We go, oh, yeah, oh, pain in the ass having to deal with DAs from you know, local council. No, having <laughs> rocket launchers um, and RPGs flying over your building while you're trying to install a brewery, that's some, that's some serious <laughs> shit. Yeah, who worries about So I think that gives you a different, a, a different perspective. And, and I uh, asked, I, I um, very briefly met Muzzin, uh, our first... Engagement was uh, was a terrific one for me because I was uh, handing over the People's Choice Award for uh, Hawker's Pale Ale, which uh, which at the Great Australian Beer Festival in uh, Geelong last year, in um, in January last year, and of oh, Feb, and uh, the beer literally that had won the uh, the People's Choice was in bright beer. Tanks the day before, or two days before. It was, that, that's right. Yeah, they, they only so got it, it, out there. it was only it had only just come out, and they were he, he was just so thrilled that we didn't actually get a chance to chat because he was on the phone. He was literally like misty eyed. He was just so thrilled. I thought, look, leave these guys to it. Managed to catch up with him again at the craft brewers conference at um, the CBIA uh, conference in, during Good Beer Week in May in Melbourne this year, and was lucky enough to do be able to do some research on him to introduce him uh when he did his presentation called the reluctant brewer and i was just taken in uh, just charismatic um very opinionated but willing to back 
perhaps a, you know an unpopular view with but this is where I'm coming from this is what I base it on and I think somebody who's who's described as a serial entrepreneur who uh, and this is a lot of stuff we don't get to chat with him about in the interview started at the Middle East's first cut price airline now that's just a couple of concepts that you just don't want to hear in the same sentence. He's, he's living an there. airline, cut price, Middle East. <laughs> and he's and at age 25, he managed to raise 50 million US dollars in capital to, to get this thing off the ground. So this guy, I, I think he's worth listening to. And But he's living the Frank Zappa, because to be a country, you have to have an airline and a, and, and, and a beer. And, a beer. and if I have to start on myself. <laughs> and Prof, we recorded this interview more than a week ago, and I can't even remember what my first question to him was. Um, I, I'm going to have a guess and say, so tell us, who is Mazen Hajar? I am a guy who's passionate about flavor, I guess, is, is how I would like to see myself. Um, I'm a Lebanese national. I was born in Lebanon, um, lived in Britain, lived in the US, lived in Dubai for a while, lived in Cairo even for a while, um, who's been obsessed with um, flavor for a long time. And I got fed up at some point of drinking mass-produced light fizzy lagers and so started the first craft brewery in the Middle East uh, during the in the middle of the July 2006 war between Hezbollah and Israel. I guess that's my background and over the last 10 years um, 961 has gone to export to 26 different countries. One of those countries was Australia and on one of my trips to market 961 in Australia I Actually, after several trips to Australia, I fell in love with the place, and me and my partner today, who used to be our distributor, um, decided to set up hawkers here in Australia. So in a nutshell, that's, that's kind of my beer background, but I have a longer history as an individual than that. <laughs> Obviously, but we, we, we might explore that a little, because you, I certainly don't think of Lebanon as a international beer powerhouse or even, you know, a, an international beer minnow. Is, is there a, a, a beer culture and a beer tradition in, in Lebanon? Well, actually, I don't blame you for not thinking Lebanon is, a, is an international uh, powerhouse in beer, but I blame you for not thanking us for inventing beer, because beer was invented in the Levant area um, in 9000 BC. So we brought beer to the world, and then somehow we managed to forget about it for a while. Oh, trust um, me, I, th I thank you regularly <laughs> at the uh, beer tastings I do. Um, but, but, but no, let's... but I mean, you know, that, that was partially what we were trying to accomplish with 961, is that raise the awareness that uh, it has been an inherent part of our culture for the last 11,000 years. We've just simply forgotten about it. And I, I, what I was trying to accomplish with 961 is trying to educate and create a beer culture that beer is not just an adult soft drink. It's actually something much more complex and much more interesting than just light, fizzy, yellow stuff. But you're right. I mean, there isn't really a substantial beer culture in Lebanon. Not yet. It's, it's getting there. Um, we have, I mean, this year, after 961 struggled for eight years trying to change the mentality, we, uh, for 10 years now, we, this year we've had uh, three new breweries open. There's another two scheduled to open next year. So we're, we're witnessing a bit of a craft, or a bit of a beer, because not all of them are craft, but a bit of a beer revolution in Lebanon, which is awesome. I, I, I guess on, on one hand, I feel the need to apologise that I know so you know little about uh, the, the, the politics and the dynamics and the religion of the the, the region. But uh, the, uh, the, the flip side of that is 
that I'm not unique there. It sounds like there's you know 23 million Australians who are very much the same. And uh, if we had a better understanding, there may not be some of the issues that we're facing now. But is you know is it a, a, a it's not just 23 million Australians. Uh, unfortunately, that is, you know, the, the local minorities who are complete douchebags who are tarnishing the names of, uh, you know, who are taking the name of, of religion and abusing it, um, have created this, this uh, kind of lack of awareness for the whole, and lack of understanding of the whole region. I mean, remember, it, 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 it's, it's that traffic flows both ways. If you went to Lebanon, you'd probably find four million people who had very little idea of what's going on in Australia themselves. So I don't, you know, it, it, you don't have to really find out about the whole world. But what I can tell you in Lebanon is half the country is Christian, half the country is Muslim. It's, it's kind of a melting pot of religions and cultures, and it's, it's a very tolerant place, unlike the rest of the Middle East these days, unfortunately. So that you don't have to apologize. I totally understand. But, but so alcohol. Um, I mean, I, I, I'd not even realised it was uh, you know that sort of split between Muslim and uh, Christianity. But it's, I, I guess that makes at least fifty percent of the population, um, you know, accepting of, of alcohol or you know potential consumers of alcohol, and fifty percent not. Is that a fair? Probably the fifty percent that are Muslims in Lebanon drink more than the fifty percent that are Christian, actually. Oh, really? and you take okay. Me, for example, I come from a Muslim family. My wife is Christian, um, and. I'm a typical example of a young kid who grew up in Lebanon who doesn't take religion too seriously. I mean, it's not just, you know, it, there has to be a separation, I think, between uh, people who are culturally brought up with an Islamic tradition and people who are practicing religious people who are, you know, uh, adherent to their religion. To say there are 1.6 million Muslims around the world is, is just ludicrous. Um, there's a lot of people who were born Muslim, but like Christians who, who are non-practicing, who don't go to church every Sunday, who don't go to the mosque every Friday. It's very simple. So, so perhaps tell us about how you came to found 961, um, because I would have thought that you know over the last 15 or 20 years, Lebanon wasn't the easiest place to build anything, let alone start a business. Uh, it wasn't, but having said that, coming to Australia, setting up a brewery in Australia isn't any easier. Um, you know, each, each market has its unique uh, challenges, I think Lebanon, um, the challenges there were more the size of the market and kind of the, the margins in the market. You had to, I learned to be super efficient because there was no fat in the market in, in, in Lebanon from, from a pricing perspective. Uh, in Australia, the challenges were a bit different, the bureaucracy and just getting through to, to getting some of the stuff done where, where, where the challenges were. Um, so, you know, it, it's no different to any other market in the world. Um, certainly, it's not as as uh, inhibitive to set up a brewery in Lebanon as, as you might think. Uh, it's actually quite easy. You go to the Ministry of Industry, they give you a, a standard set of, of guidelines as to what they expect from you. You meet those guidelines, off you go. You've got your license and you start producing beer. Prof, did you want to step in? I'd promise. I'd said that Prof was going to pretty much run this interview and uh, my, my, my just genuine ignorance and, uh, in, 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 you know, questioning uh, has sort of taken over. So, Prof, uh, mate, you, you jump in here. Maz, at the uh, Craft Beer Industry Association Craft Brewers Conference uh, back in May, you did a, a presentation headlined The Reluctant Brewer. 
you want to talk us a little bit through some of the key points from yep. that? Because the reluctance was not so much uh, that you were reluctant to talk, as anyone who has met you uh, will know is not the case, um, but more about we seem a little bit reluctant to, uh, I guess, champion our cause as brewers in Australia. Well, I mean, the, the title reluctant brewer, like you said, isn't, isn't about me being reluctant and it's not about me being reluctant to, to talk about the subject. It's more to do with the fact that as, as a passionate advocate of craft beer, I mean, uh, in whatever terms that we define craft beer, as a passionate advocate of better beer, let me say, uh, for the sake of, of clarity, um, I feel that sometimes there is a bit of reluctance from brewers to go full in, um, especially in Australia. Um, and there is, there is almost a, a lack of, you know, there's a, there's a conservative approach to the market where people feel that they need to trial the market and they're not completely convinced. They're still trying to test the market for this and that and, uh, and this idea and that idea. Whereas I think the Australian market is ready. And it's more than ready. It's there. It's waiting for us to provide us with a better quality uh, product. The, the consumers are anxious, itching at it. And we've just got to really put our hearts and our souls and, and commit to this market as much as possible. Um, and so for me, the title Reluctant Brewer was this kind of, yeah, we'll start small and then we'll grow slightly and then no, because ultimately beer is a volume game and uh, beer is, is there is a there is the art of of crafting a beer, but there's also the the the, the unfortunate day-to-day -day administrative um, tasks of selling it and negotiating uh, better pricing with your suppliers and and just the the things that go with running a, a very stream streamlined efficient business. Um, you know, like any other consumer product, the beer has a price elasticity, and we are letting our consumers down if we are not able to produce uh, beer to the most efficient that we can. We need to be able to be price competitive with the big boys and not just continue to tax our consumers. There is no reason why our consumers need to uh, be paying for our lack of commitment to the uh, to the, to the cause, so to speak. And I, I say this in a very generalist term. I don't want people to come back and say, what do you mean we're not committed? They are, I mean, we can be more committed. I'm always a perfectionist. I'm always pushing for more. So I'm not being um, negative about it. I'm just, I just want to see more commitment, more aggressive negotiations with suppliers so we can be as efficient, as streamlined, as producers as possible so we can then bring down the price as much as possible so then we can produce a better quality product as much as possible so that we can target a wider audience and convert as many people as possible to our cause. I think craft beer should be just regular beer. I mean, if you talk to Europeans and you say craft beer, to Germans and Belgians and Brits, that's our definition of craft beer is just beer to them. That's what they grew up with. That's what they're used to. And I think it's, it's you know, I, I would like to see beer, craft beer, moving away from that niche snobby segment to becoming really at the, at the reach of everybody. Yep. Two elements. I have more friends after this. <laughs> they'll, they'll stay. The, the... Here, here. <laughs>
Maz, two things that are, are, are very dear to your heart and that are um, at the key of, of this issue, I guess, uh, of, of, of moving ourselves forward and, and, and getting bigger. One is the, the raw material side of things, um, which is, which is a, a big issue uh, in terms of, of unit cost. And the other thing is the professionalism that you see we need to attach to uh, the selling and marketing of our beer uh, as much as we do to the, uh, the technical uh, brewing of our beer. So first of all, you mentioned uh, to me that when you set up 961 in Lebanon in the middle of the Hezbollah-Israeli war, you were still able to get, for example, your uh, empty bottles cheaper uh, imported, I think, from Italy at the time than what yep. you can get them from Australia in Australia today. So that's obviously one uh, element that we, we need to work on. And the other one is the professionalism of our, um, of our, our sales and, and marketing people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem right now that I see is a, a kind of a very um, almost homebrew approach to what's happening in the industry. We, people need to realize that 70 to 80% of our costs as brewers isn't really the malt and the hops. It is our packaging material, not just the bottles, but the cases, the labels, the, the, the caps. And we as brewers need to be able to negotiate better contracts with our suppliers. And, and, and to be fair to the suppliers, we need to commit to bigger. It's, it's a virtuous cycle. As you produce more beer, you are able to buy in bulk, you are able to drop your prices. You are able to offer a deeper discount to your clients. Offering a deeper discount to your clients makes your product more attractive. They'll drink more. And it's a virtuous cycle to, to a, a better, lower-priced beer where, where you can produce for more, more customers. The problem right now is um, we, we haven't addressed those relationships between us and the suppliers. And it's not just the suppliers of raw materials. We also need to be addressing the issue with the government. Excise is, is as, a, as a foreigner, and I, I, I dare say, uh, give my opinion as, an, as a pair of outside eyes, is unbalanced. I mean, there is no reason why beer should be paying a ludicrous amount of excise compared to wine. It's just not fair. This is a growing industry that is employing a lot of people that has the potential to become just as important as wine uh, is in, in Australia. And, and, and the scope of our employment and the scope of our economic activity extends far beyond the fact that we're producing beer and selling beer. It helps support the hospitality industry. It helps support the farmers, the growers, uh, the logistics, and all these other side industries. Um, so we need to also address our relationship with the government, our relationship with our suppliers, and all of this to be able to produce more efficiently so we can then turn around and give our consumers a better, cheaper product. Um, it, it's, there is a misconception that if we go down in price, it means that we've somehow compromised quality when people realize that a 50% cut in our, in our uh, raw materials from malt, hops, and, and, and whatever is only such a small part of our total cost. It really isn't the most important part. There are other elements that we need to focus on. I, I think the other issue that we've got, Maz, is that, uh, that there are elements within society that think that if alcohol price goes down, 
then people will consume more as if it's it's purely price sensitivity. Whereas I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was telling me that uh, you know there are major publicans who would rather sell spirits these days because it's cheaper to sell spirits than it is draft beer when you look at all of the costs and all of the you know equipment involved in caring for your beer and then the, the problems involved in pouring and the wastage and all of those things. Um, I, I think that the figure was quoted, it's $1.70 um, for, for the cost of a shot of spirits versus $2.20, um, and yet they sell for the same price. So you can sort of see that there's significant margin, um, but yet, yet people don't want to see the price of beer coming down. Well, the, 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 there, is a three, there are three parts to the answer to that question. First of all, it is absolutely not true that price elasticity of beer or any other alcohol deters heavy drinking. Heavy drinking have different issues than price. Price is not gonna, it's not, it, it's not a gateway drug that you're getting people into. This whole mentality that if we drop prices, people will drink more. That is, if you have the tendency to drink more, there are other issues other than price that are that are determining of that. Um, secondly, it's irrelevant to the conversation when it comes to beer. Uh, where the where the tax is. What is more relevant is the fairness of the tax. So let me give you a very simple example. If we are deterring people from drinking alcohol and we are taxing beer based on the volume of alcohol in beer, so the higher ABV beers are paying more tax, well, surely a wine that is three times as much alcohol as beer should be paying three times as much as tax following that logic. But it isn't. It's paying one-third of what beer is per liter of alcohol. So there is a discrepancy there. I mean, when we when we ferment a cider, it goes on to the wet tax, which is a wine tax. But then if you add cinnamon to it to make it more interesting, it suddenly shoots up to a ready-to-drink tax, which is by far more expensive. There is a, there is a, a lack of a, a commonsensical approach to alcohol tax right now. And unfortunately, this is the accumulation of years and years of various lobbies and various things and no government wants to tackle this because ultimately whatever it does it's going to anger someone somewhere and so there's been this leave it alone don't don't stir the pot uh, but as beer producers we need to be addressing the fairness of excise that we pay uh, and this is not a question of should we pay less should we pay more it's just align all the all the alcohol producers with an equal and fair tax somehow somewhere something that is more logical now the third facet of all of this is actually the american dietetics association recommends a regular intake of two units of beer per adult male per day and one unit per female adult per day because beer has micronutrients fights diabetes type B, lowers blood pressure, fights cholesterol, has all the good things that are coming out of wine. Again, it's about moderation and about understanding the product. Like any good thing, too much of a good thing is, is a bad thing. Um, it, it is about responsible consumption of alcohol. It is not about prohibition. The days of temperance and prohibition have proven that they were wrong and they cannot work. And therefore, we need to educate the consumer on the benefits and the risks associated with alcohol, but we need to do that with a clear strategy and coming from a base where there is a, a common logic um, 
approach, a logical approach from the government in terms of taxation, in terms of how to tackle the subject rather than the haphazard stuff. There was a study done on price elasticity of beer in Australia and New Zealand, which basically proved it doesn't matter how much you increase the price of beer, people with an alcohol problem are still going to drink. They'll just find cheaper alcohol. They'll just, yeah. Or it doesn't, that doesn't deter them. Oh, Prof, I love a good rant. Maybe uh, we should get Mezzan on uh, more often. The problem is that I, 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 I rant a bit too much and people sometimes, uh, I, I lose a lot of friends <laughs> based on my Not rant. at all. No, you'll, you'll fit right in here at Brews News. <laughs> if you didn't have a successful brewery, uh, we'd be giving you a job. But let's, let, let's talk a little bit about your brewery. Um, maybe you can tell us uh, you know, what, what the thinking was and what, and what the idea was when you uh, started Hawkers. Well, uh, the, the, the name Hawkers is obviously the, the street peddler. It's referring to the street peddler, which, funnily enough, you'll find all these no Hawkers signs in Australia, and I, fi- I find that completely amusing as, a, as you know, as a fresh immigrant, well, fresh resident in Australia. Um, the, 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 the funny part about it is we were in Sydney, me and Joe, and we were selling 961 out of a bag, and he said, oh, we've gone back to our roots. We're now Hawkers again. And I said, what do you mean? I had never heard the term Hawkers. It turns out that the original Lebanese, Italian, Greek, and whatever other immigrants that came here when the country was set up were hawkers. Um, they were street peddlers, and they played a vital role in the establishment of the colonies and the expansion of the colonies because they provided supply routes into the outer villages and towns and cities um, away from the central population of cities. And somehow over the years, they became street peddlers who were annoying people. But, but historically, they were very relevant. And so when we decided to set up the brewery, that was exactly the name that we were going to use. It, it was amazing. It just fit uh, for us. The philosophy behind Hawkers is we, after 10 years of brewing, I, I, I think my, my approach to brewing is you need the right tools to be able to produce the best quality beer that you can. It's no, no guarantee that you're going to produce great beer. But it's like you have a great driver who enters a Formula One race in a scooter. He's going to do the best he can with a scooter, but it's not going to be great. So our philosophy was to buy the best possible car that we could. Not the most expensive, but what we thought was the most fitting car for our needs. And then hopefully it can, it can um, allow us to use our skill sets to the best possible uh, approach. And so we invested quite heavily in, in probably some of the best equipment um, at in, in 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 a little place in Melbourne called Reservoir in one of the in the, uh, in the suburbs, um, which when we did, people were like, "What are you doing in Reservoir? What, what an odd place to be!" But we thought the community here is fantastic, and it, it, we've been proven right because we've been adopted by the community here, and we're very honoured and proud that that uh, we're a, we're a part of the community here now. But we built a big craft brewery, understanding that volume is going to allow us to negotiate better terms with our suppliers and it's going to allow us to buy better tools which will allow us better control on the process and to be able to better produce uh, beer. So that was the thinking behind Hawkers. And in terms of the, the beers you've made, you, you, you haven't sort of brought out, you know, busted out, uh, you know, crazy barrel-aged um, triple IPAs or anything like that. Your, your, your range um, is is a fairly you know a, a approachable range that's uh, you know um, converting you know regular beer drinkers. Not you you, you don't seem to be going after an aficionado market. Um, 
we will eventually. I think we need to prove our credentials as brewers first. And so we came out with a pale ale as our first beer. I mean, that, that, that really is the hardest beer to come out with as a, as a first brew in Australia, since everybody makes a really great pale ale in this country. So we, what we were trying to do is we felt that there was, you know, craft beer is somewhere between 3 and 5%, depending on who you talk to. And that's another problem in the market. We, we really don't have any statistics, so we don't really understand the proper story of what's going on. So anyways, the craft beer is 3 to, to 5% of the market. There's still 95% of the market that we still have to go out there and convert. And there is, you know, I'm, I love my barrel-aged imperial double, triple, quadruple uh, <laughs> sour with a huge amount of hops and this and that and, and you know, coffee from the highest mountains and I don't know where. That's fine. But shouldn't we first be focused on converting as many people to our cause as possible? Shouldn't we be proving our credentials? Shouldn't we be focused on making great beer time and time and time again so then we can start going and doing some of the fun stuff, taking people on a journey with us? Um, the, what I see is one of the problems in the craft beer industry is this almost snobbery. We, we're on the risk of becoming like the wine guys, suited up and, and, and uh, inapproachable. And we shouldn't be because we don't have the terroir to, to justify it. We're not restricted by land. We're pulling our raw ingredients from lots and lots of different places. We are not growing so many grapes so many vines on a set piece of land. Maz, as far as uh, capacity goes, you've already um, it, you've told us that you know one of the keys is to to build big so that you get those economies of scale. Uh, rumor has it that you may have already had to expand your own capacity. Well, when we started up, so we we had a two a two facet approach to the whole business. We wanted to brew hawkers, but we also wanted to give back to the community. So we, we're very aware of um, the, the, the cost-prohibitive nature of, of buying equipment and investing in equipment. And so partly um, out of our own belief in, in giving back to the community and also out of the self-interest of, of generating an additional revenue to help pay for all this investment, I've just mortgaged my house and so has Joe. And so we really have our necks on the line here. So it's, we've really got to make a run of it. So we've decided, in, in, in addition to brewing hawkers, that we would offer some of our capacity to other craft brewers who need capacity or want uh, to produce better beer but don't have the access to the equipment. Um, and since we started, we have invested in a centrifuge, which has greatly expanded our capacity uh, we've already sold out till January. Uh, we stopped taking bookings after January just simply because we've already sold out the expanded capacity, and now we're, in a, we're acquiring new tanks to expand capacity again. It, it's, it's, you know, both hawkers itself, we haven't even been able to leave Melbourne so far. We literally just started selling in Tazi um, two, a week ago. So it's, it's, it's been a phenomenal ride. We just can't keep up with demand for our own beer or demand for, for um, the capacity that we're putting out to contact. And we are committed to our clients 
uh, in the contract field. So we are helping other. We're hoping that we're helping other guys um, meet the, the demands of their uh, businesses. And so, as an ethical and a moral commitment to these guys, we can't turn around and say, "Well, you know, sorry, we need to use that tank for our own beer." So we're trying to grow capacity as much as possible, um, both for our beer and for for our contract clients. We're in a great position. Craft beer is in a great position. The market is expanding exponentially. And the ability to produce consistently good beer at reasonable prices is going to see that market expand exponentially more uh, than it already is. Prof, oh, we, we've been chatting uh, now for over half an hour. And I, I think we could easily go for, for an hour more, but we, we might break this one here, uh, Muzzin, and uh, definitely uh, look at getting you back uh, yeah, for, for a future episode. It's always my pleasure. I just hope um, people don't send me too much hate mail after this. Um, and <laughs> We've only just scratched the surface. So you, you've still got, dare I say it, plenty of weapons in the arsenal. <laughs> I do, and I am a passionate believer in the cause. I am a passionate believer in Australia, and I'm a passionate believer in craft beer, and I'm a passionate believer in craft beer in Australia. So it's a, it's a triple whammy for me. What What is it that... Do you think that people are a little bit protective of this idea that craft beer is, you know, I call it the walled garden or it's just this little thing that needs to be protected and almost protected from the mainstream market, which is why you can't say anything that doesn't, um, you know, you know, meet, meet with broad agreement or, you know, the, the, the common sense or, you know, the, the, the common, commonly held view. Um, that, that people do get upset if you start to ask questions about it. Is, is there a fear that, as you said, that you know, we, we can take beer a little bit too seriously or protect it too much? I think we're, a, we're an infant um, industry, and so there is a reluctance to make enemies just because there is no need. Even if we were a much bigger industry, there is no need to make any enemies. The problem that I see right now is we have... Um, not allocated our attention to the right, we have not focused our attention to the right cause. So we, we run around patting each other on the back just because, you know, it's, we're, we're young, we're fresh, we're all excited about the industry. I think what we really should be doing is being more critical of our own selves because that forces us to produce better and better and better beer. We need to be perfectionists. But the real battle lies in our access to the market. So we should be taking the battle to the big boys, those contractors who are buying out taps, restricting our access to the, to the market. When we have the opportunity to put our beer in front of our consumers, our consumers will make their own choice, their own decisions on what to drink and where to drink it. Right now, the biggest battle that I see for craft beer is one, getting our act together as craft brewers in terms of improving the quality of our production, the consistency of our production, educating our market. But the second problem that I see us facing and the second main battle is getting access to the market. We need to have the ability to compete on an equal footing with all the big guys. Unfortunately, some of the smaller guys are starting to play in that field. And I, I would really like to see the, 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 the consumer make their own mind up rather than someone makes their mind up for a couple of thousand dollars to buy a tap up. As I said, we could probably speak for another hour, but uh, we might end this chat here and uh, definitely get you on again uh, very, very soon. Uh, Mazen Hajat, thank you very much. Congratulations on 
uh, Hawkers on, on, on this phenomenal launch you've had for that. And particularly, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. In the garden, what a garden. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go. That was Muslim Hajar. Now, Prof, he was everything that you promised and more charismatic. And I, I love the way that you know he's opinionated, and he's got that touch of you know I probably upset everybody saying this, which when you're appearing on Radio Brews News, you certainly aren't going to offend anybody. Exactly. And I say again, you know, we as a throwaway line, we say, oh, you know, you get a rocket up you. This guy has had rockets up. <laughs> so, lovely guy. But, uh, you know, thank you. That was great to have him on board. Now, Prof, uh, just before we get out of here, um, not, too much, not too much in our mailbag. Um, I might have to, Lockie, sit right down and write myself a letter. Write that letter, man! Yes, gonna write it right now. Sit right down and write myself a letter. And make believe it came from you I'm going to write words all so sweet There we go. So, uh, I like what you did there. <laughs> did you like that? So, yes. Uh, yes we, Almost uh, seamless segue. We, we don't have any... Uh, we, 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 but we did have the music queued up, so we had to use the music, even well, though we didn't actually we, have We had to use the music. Um, we, we haven't had any... Well, Would you get a nice review? It, but it, well, is, is Which it is good? not necessarily a card and or letter no we do we do well we do in fact uh on we, we have been asking people to review us on uh itunes and titch 23 um it should be great if we if if any of you have twitter handles or anything like that we know you probably don't want to blow your own you know horns but if you do leave us a uh, well review. particularly if you happen to be say for example you know it, it could be Ari Mervis, uh, under a, you know, he yeah, just doesn't I'm want pretty, to give away I'm that, pretty know, sure Ari I'm doesn't. the CEO of yeah. SAB Miller in Australia, so I'll use a different name. Very to, unlikely. But to if, if you do have a Twitter handle, somebody that we can refer you to and uh, let people know that they can follow you because you're obviously impeccable taste. Um, but Titch23 uh, gave us five stars. Look, we, we will take them. We, we don't, don't have to improve it. now. <laughs> But we please, will. give us a four, four and a half. Like, oh, just, just review us. However, yeah. but five stars will no, certainly take. That. And he says, top podcast, another great show in the Australian beer world. And I always like to see what else you've reviewed when you uh, review us. And he has reviewed Basic Brewing Radio by James Spencer, uh, which is a great homebrew podcast in the US. In the US. It must have been going for at least eight or nine, seven, eight, nine years, because I've been listening to that forever um, and he's given that five stars run keeper track your run another top app uh, this just works it's simple smart and good place to start i totally love it best place to start five stars and listeners if you are drinking good beer you should be running as well or partaking in some other form of activity so well, uh, well, yes. you can just walk if you don't want to show off 
You can just walk. Well, you can. And Runkeeper tracks your walk as well. So, But anyway, Titch23, you are a man of impeccable taste, so thank you very much. But no one has called us on our... Um, on our phone number. Radio Brews News Hotline. That number again is 0730401508. So, yeah, look, if you agree with us, if you just want to have a chat, um, if you've got a question, please leave us a message there. Otherwise, email. Um, I'm on Good Beer Matt. We're Oz Brews News on Twitter. You're Pete write, Mitchell. Write something on a scrap of paper and attach it to a brick. <laughs> Matt's <laughs> address. <laughs> Through our window. But uh, please don't make us sit down and write our own cards and letters in future. But, uh, Prof, mate, actually, you're up here for your bunking with me for 10 days, so 12 days. So we'll probably get one more podcast in live for next Friday. If we're still talking to each other. If we're still talking to each other. We may, but, re- uh, we, we may record our, our pieces separately and then get lucky to stitch them <laughs> stitch together, together seamlessly. And make it sound like we're, yes. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, listeners, thank you very much, and we, we do thank you for your positive feedback, even when it's not expressed to us. Um, we, we do hear lots from you, so I uh, thank you very much. And uh, if you do have any ideas, please let us know. Otherwise, just thank you for taking the time to review us on iTunes or whatever your favourite podcasting app is. And uh, until next week, drink less, drink better, and we look forward to joining you for another good beer very, very soon. Prof, as I say, strike up the band. Yeah.